Praise God. We're going through 1 Timothy, and believe it or not, we're back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, verses, we'll basically be looking at verses uh, 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. We left off in verse 8 last time. We were in 1 Timothy. And man, these two verses just, I hope God takes these and just gets you excited about the breadth and the depth of his love for not just us, but for all, all, all of humanity. And what an appropriate passage to go through on a, you know, Christmas month, you know, the month where so many of us celebrate tens of millions, hundreds of millions of professing Christians celebrate Christ's birth. But we read in verse 9, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. Now, Paul has a few of these trustworthy statements, you know, faithful sayings. And when he says that, it should get our attention that this is something he really wants us to zero in on. He wants to key in on that this is important. It's all important, but I love the emphasis here. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive. And that is to live spiritually upright lives before him. When you look at the immediate context right before verse 9, that we seek to uh, live more for the spiritual life than even the physical life, even though the physical life, he says, verse 8, bodily exercises of some importance, but spiritual exercises of far more importance, both for this life and the life to come. Amen. And then he says, for this we also labor and strive. Why do we strive? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Because our hope is fixed on the Lord. Is your hope fixed on the Lord today? Amen. Amen. And then it says something wonderful about this living God, you know. Who is the Savior of who? All men. He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, this gift that we uh, understand as Jesus, Yeshua, the Hamashiach, the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, his name means God is salvation, amen? amen? And we come to Christ, man, we basically, when you open up your heart to him, the Bible says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, amen? So you receive this gift of eternal life through Christ. Uh, this is a very controversial verse, and I would not be a faithful pastor if I did not examine the controversy, especially in light of uh, a lot of people, I believe, are mixed up in regard to what the Lord says about the gift of Christ and the fact that he was given for the world. And so we need to address that because Paul is talking about the extent of which Christ is a Savior. What does it say? He's a Savior of a few men? Some men there? Only the elect? All men. I'm glad you guys are correcting me. That's good. Of all men. Amen. He's the Savior of all men. In what sense is he the Savior of all men? Are all people automatically saved? No. Nope. There's a condition of salvation. But through his atonement, through his sacrifice, he's made the provision of salvation for all men. John 1.29. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of some men? No. Of the whole world takes away the sins of the world. Amen? So he's the Savior who paid for the sins of the world. Yet, Hallelujah. notice the condition, though. He's the Savior of all men in the sense that, in what sense he's the Savior of all men? He died for everyone. Amen? Amen? But it goes on to say, Paul goes on to say, especially of who? Especially of believers. This verse fits our theology like a hand in a glove. Amen? Amen? Because we believe he died for everyone. Yet we believe that that salvation is not universal unless you, people have to come to Christ. Unless you what? Repent, you all likewise perish. Amen. Amen. Believe and thou shalt be saved. Amen. Amen. So even though he's the Savior of all men, God provides salvation. He died for everyone. The scriptures are very clear. It's especially, he's the Savior of all men, but especially of those who believe. Are you trusting Jesus right now? So are you confident that if you're trusting Jesus right now, you can know that you're saved? Yes. Well, wait a minute. How do you know he really died for you? So. Where does he say so? Everywhere. Everywhere. Good, good answer, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to make me cough and make me laugh. I've got to be careful here. But he's the Savior of all men right there in this text. He says, 
died for everyone. He provides salvation for all people, but especially of those who believe. Yet can we truly all, each and every one of us, without exception, approach Christ and unwrap the gift of salvation with full confidence that we don't have to doubt that he's died for us? In pastoral counsel, I've had a lot of people through the years, uh, people that have been right here visiting our fellowship, in our fellowship for some time, that came from a tradition, a Reformed or Calvinistic tradition, believing that Jesus only died for the elect. And they struggled with the whole idea that they could be saved. One gentleman was here for, I don't know, a few years, two or three years. You know, he didn't come at the midweek studies, but he came on Sundays. And the poor guy, I love him, I pray for him, I still see him once in a while. And I'm not sure where he's at right now. But he came here as a very, very strong Calvinist and was convinced that he wasn't one of the elect and that Jesus hadn't really died for him. And my heart broke for him. Because a special guy, man. I mean, just, you know, he had a humble heart before God. And, and it was just heartbreaking, you know. I had a gal come to the fellowship, and uh, she comes once in a while. And, but uh, she goes to a Reformed church in the valley, uh, John MacArthur's church, where he, he teaches that Jesus only died for the elect. Although his seminary teaches that too, but Master's College teaches, you know, the professor's to get a job there, you typically have to believe that Jesus died for everyone. I know that sounds so strange, huh? Because that's what John MacArthur used to believe, and they really haven't been able to change that with all the professors there. So you have a, you know, some professors at the seminary, most are, oh, Jesus only died for the elect. The professors at Master's College, no, he died for everyone, you know? So they must have some interesting talks among themselves. But it's just interesting uh, because this gal, and she's precious, man, sweetheart, but she uh, was there for years, but convinced that she couldn't be saved because she didn't feel, believe that Jesus died for her. And then she heard some of my messages. She listened to one message, I think she said three times, on who did Jesus die for? And she said, I was convinced from hearing that message that Jesus did die for me. She put her trust in Jesus and trusting him for her salvation became a different person, you know, because her confidence was in Christ. Amen. Uh, pray for these folks, you know. I had a gal come up to me after service on Sunday, and she's 18 years old, she told me. Uh, she came up with tears, uh, and she had tears for the half an hour or so that I talked to her and prayed with her, continue to flow. And she asked me, is it too late for her, you know, could she repent, you know, of her sins? And I said, of course you can, you know. And I let her know she had, did not have to have any doubt whether Jesus loved her, whether Jesus died for her, amen. amen. And that she didn't have to. The last thing you want, I mean, Satan is a, a roaring lion, man. He wants to destroy people's faith. And if he can get people confused as to whether Jesus even, if God even loves them in a salvific way, right? And God truly wants to save them. And if he can get them to believe that God wants to damn most people and that Jesus didn't die for most people, and that would be most people would have to be concerned, amen? Whether he, you know, they could even be saved if he didn't die for them, then you can't be saved. So this is, a, this is something that uh, is a, is a, this isn't some like dead horse we're talking about that we're beating. This is a raging debate in the body of Christ right now as I speak. And wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. It leads to a lot of sadness, a lot of despair, a lot of hopelessness. Millions of people, to one degree or another, under the pains of wondering if Jesus, God loves them, if Jesus died for them. And that what breaks my heart is so unnecessary. Such trauma does not have to take place in the human heart. And that's why you should know what the scriptures say. And you should be able to defend who Jesus died for. Amen? If you call yourself a Christian and you believe that Jesus died for you and you believe the gospel and you're convinced of its reality, uh, you should know for yourself first and foremost that who did Jesus die for, right? You want to make sure he died for you, right? But you should also be able to help others arrive at that conclusion because it's something that I've had to visit numerous times in pastoral counsel, you know. Even when I was evangelizing on the streets one time, a gentleman came up to me and said he wanted to hear my gospel presentation. And when I gave him the gospel presentation, he was like, well, I hope you're not telling people that Jesus died for them because that's not biblical. So he was waiting to see if I would tell him that Jesus died for him. And I said, hey, man, 
I forget what I said exactly, but I do believe Jesus died for you. I would, I would have easily said that, you know, that God loves you. And they challenged me to debate. He was a former pastor. And about a year later, we had a debate at Blessed Hope Chapel. I was a pastor like a couple months at that point, but a year later, we ended up having a debate, which is on video, you know. Uh, he, I said, well, let's have it at your church, since he was challenging me, right? And our fellowship just started. He said, and he came, got me back to me. He called me back and said, hey, Joe, I can't have it at our church, right, where I'm at. Because he was there an elder at that time. He used to be the, the pastor. And he goes, because my pastor said, too many people believe like you believe, so it could confuse them, you know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so a year later, we had that, that debate. I'll actually share a few scriptures with you that I shared with him during that debate. But uh, the scriptures tell us in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, a great Christmas passage. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The angel speaking to the shepherds who were tripping out, which shall be to all people. Good tidings, great joy for who? All people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So I guess, you know, we look at 1 Timothy 4, right? you know, verses 9 and 10, we want to say, okay, wait a minute. Is it good tidings? Is it joy for all people? Or we share the gospel? Should we tell people the truth if we're Calvinists and say, you know what? Jesus might have died for you. I'm saying if you're an honest evangelical Calvinist, that would be an honest way to present the gospel. You know what? Jesus died for some sinners. That's what you should say. And you may be one of them, but if you're honest, you'll say, but most likely you're not one of them. Because the road is broad and many people go to, most people go to destruction and you're probably one of those most people. But hey, give it a shot. Trust Jesus and perhaps you'll be one of those lucky guys that is among the elect that he happened to have died for. I mean, that's more honest than to act like, you know, you preach the gospel to everybody and, that, and pretend that everybody could be saved. Because everybody can't be saved if Jesus only died for the elect. Are you with me? Amen. It's not an honest presentation of the gospel. If you present the gospel as anybody can come when the reality is you don't believe that because you believe Jesus only died for the elect. It's not an honest presentation of the gospel. It's an empty offer to most people. But it's not an empty offer because Jesus did indeed die for all people. Amen? And we don't have to give any qualifications or caveats or feel guilty like we're kind of being a little deceptive when we present the gospel to people. Now, it's interesting. Um, when we look at 1 Timothy 4.10, it's like, well, how do you get around such a clear verse? Right? He's the Savior of what? Of who? All men, especially of believers. How do you get around that? Well, uh, some Calvinists read it like this. You know, they'll read it like this. God is the Savior of all elect among the nations, especially those who believe now. You know? What's that called? Yeah, good, good question, Jim. Who says? That's called what we call in uh, hermeneutics, eisegesis. Eisegesis to like put into something. Eisegesis is reading in the text something that's not there. Exegesis from ek, out from, is exegesis is actually deriving from the text the truth that God has placed there. Not reading our theology into the text. So the text says he's a savior of who? All men. But especially of those who believe. Which fits exactly what we teach. Now, if we taught that he's the Savior of all men, period, he just died for everyone and he's saved everybody and you don't have to believe, there's no condition to salvation, we'd be universalist. Universalism is a heresy. Universalism is the other extreme from Calvinism. It teaches that everybody's saved or that everybody will be saved. Or as Rob Bell wrote in the title of his book, God Wins, as though everybody's going to be one to Christ sometime in the future. That is absolutely unbiblical. The road is narrow, Jesus said, and few entered the gate. Amen. So salvation has been offered to all. Jesus provides it for everyone. He died and paid for the sins of all people. Yet their sins are not actually forgiven unless they meet the condition of repentant faith. Amen? Now, so this is eisegesis reading in the text. Now you could, I guess, you know, you could think from a Calvinistic perspective that you could add the word nations in there. He died for all nations, Right? And we would say, yeah, he did die for all nations, but you're still adding that word in there. But yeah, he did die for all nations, and nations are made up of 
He didn't die for geographical areas. He died for people, amen? So he died for all nations. He died for all the people in all the nations. But you're still adding the word nations there. But nations doesn't work for them because they have to add another word in there. He died for the elect in all the nations. Does it? That's add another word, amen? And both moves are a, a matter of eisegesis. Yet when, you're, when Calvinists get done with this text, that's what they want you to believe, which is not in the actual text. Now, it's interesting because John Piper, a leading Calvinistic, you know, Reformed uh, teacher, uh, who's really struggled with this doctrine, okay? My heart breaks for him because I read where when he, prays for his, when he prayed for his three sons when they were young, pray for one of his sons named Abraham Piper. He's a leading atheist now on the internet. He's a troll and trying to talk people out of their faith. But he prayed for his three sons, and then he'd, he'd say, he'd tell God, because he didn't know if they were chosen or not, and if they were chosen for salvation or, or you know, just going to be damned forever because God didn't truly want to save them, and Jesus didn't die for them in a salvific way. So he said that when I pray for them, I, I hope that God loves them as much as I love them. What a horrible thing, thought. I mean, to think that we could love our children more than God loves them. But he, I think the guy has a good a heart, that he, a neat heart, you know, but when your theology messes up your thinking, it puts you in despair that you should not have. Let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. God isn't will that any of these little ones perish, both in Matthew 18. That's got the heart of God. Amen. But Piper actually teaches that 1 Timothy 4.10 teaches that Jesus died for everyone. So we could say, hallelujah, amen, but really you can't to that statement. Why? Because he says, yeah, he did die for everyone. He quotes this verse right here. I want to see what Piper said about this passage here. He says, yeah, he died for everybody. But he died for people, and he's the Savior of all men in the sense that he died for everybody. But he died for people in a different way. He died for some people, but not in such a way as to save them. And here's what he writes. We do not deny that Christ died to save all in some sense. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10 that in Christ God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What we deny is that the death of Christ is for all men in the same sense. Now you're adding something that's not in the text. Again, eisegesis. God sent Christ to save all in some sense. Where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't. And he sent Christ to save those who believe in a more particular sense. God's intention is different for each. That is a natural way to read 1 Timothy 4.10. No, it's not. For all men, the death of Christ is the foundation of the free offer of the gospel. This is the meaning of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The sending of the Son is for the whole world in the sense that Jesus makes plain so that whoever believes in him should not perish. In that sense, God sent Jesus for everyone. What? Or to use the words of 1 Timothy 4.10, God is the Savior of all people and that Christ died to provide an absolutely reliable and valid offer of forgiveness to all such that everyone, without exception, who trusts in Christ would be saved. Now that sounds a lot like what we say right there at the end there, doesn't it? Okay? But he's not saying what we're saying. He's not saying what the text is saying either because he's saying that even though Jesus died for everyone, it was in different ways. He died for non-believers a different way than he died for believers. Even though you can't bring that up in the text. By the way, Good Fight Ministries will give $10,000. Remember I told you? We offer $10,000 for years and years and years for anybody that could just give us one verse that says that the, the rapture comes before the tribulation period. You know how many people tried to collect that? Just two. The whole time. Nobody even tried except two people. And only one really tried. The other one was Thomas Ice, top pre-trib theologian, you know, who dealt with my offer with uh, Tom McMahon, who I love, Tom McMahon. I've done work, uh, or I've had Tom actually preach here a couple times years ago, you know. And I worked with Dave Hunt as far as writing some articles for his uh, Christian Information Bureau before it became Berean Call, uh, who Tom uh, McMahon worked with. And I, I love Tom McMahon, but Tom McMahon and Thomas Ice were on their program. Dave had passed on to be with the Lord. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, Thomas Ice said, well, you know, 
I don't think Joe's going to go for this or agree with us here, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, or I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right? Remember the verses that say that, that concerning the, that Christ coming to gather us together, the rapture? It won't happen until two things happen first. The falling away, that's right. And the, well, I'm putting that finger down. The other one's still up. I'm like, be careful. Let's do it this way. Put that one down first. Okay. <laughs> don't make myself laugh either. Um, so, and the Antichrist will be revealed in the temple. Those two events, right? He took the verse that says in the King James, the falling away will happen first. Or it's translated, in most translations, say the rebellion will happen first. He says, really, that word apostasia, which means falling away, by the way, really, that is the rapture right there. The apostasy is really the rapture. I've done a whole message on that, so I'm not going to get into that. But I have another offer, $10,000 offer, that Good Fight uh, offers, ministries. And that is if you can just show me one verse that says Jesus only died for the elect. Don't hold your breath. It's not going to happen. Well, can you show me a verse that Jesus died is the Savior of all men? Yeah, we just looked at one. Well, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should. Yeah, you just quoted another verse. That he tasted, he showed me a verse that he tasted death for everyone. Yeah, that's in Hebrews 2. Well, how about a verse that says he's not only propitiation for our sins, the elect, but for the sins of the whole world? Yeah, you just quoted 1 John 2, 2. And it goes on and on and on. Of course, they won't couch the question that way, right? But if they say, hey, can you show us a verse that says he died for the whole world? Yeah, 1 John 2, 2. He's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. There's no verse that says the opposite. In fact, if it did, it would contradict the clear teaching of Scripture and what the church had believed for centuries and centuries and centuries until about, you know, 1,500 years later after the church started when the Reformation took place. Now, and there was a big, emphasis, there was a big influence of an, a Roman Catholic scholar, a Roman Catholic teacher named Augustine upon the Reformers. And they basically were adopting a teaching by a Roman Catholic uh, uh, so-called saint, Augustine, not the teaching of Scripture. And then they imposed that upon the Scripture. Now, Christ is, or, or Piper is saying that, that non-Calvinist, uh, you know, or I should say that the elect, Jesus died for the elect in a special way. But he didn't die for everybody the way he died for the elect. Piper says this, Jesus, quote, purchased for them all that was necessary to get them saved, including the grace of regeneration and the gift of faith. See the difference? So Jesus died for everybody in that he paid for their sins, but he died for the elect in a different way. He died for their sins in such a way whereby they'd be born again, regenerated, and be given the, the gift of faith. Praise the Lord. I just got to praise the Lord for his goodness. My nose would not stop running before I came up here. And I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's like, I'm Lisa. Do you have any kind of decongestants or anything? No. I'm so sorry. She looked. Thank you, baby, for looking. She looked hard, but there was none. But God is so good. Oh, whoops. No, I'm just kidding. Not yet. Uh, but God is so good. Amen. So uh, now it's interesting that Piper says he died for the whole world. He died for the non-elect too paid for their sins in some way, but he paid for the elect sins in a way that the way he died for them includes the gift of faith, but first he mentions the gift of regeneration. And that means that he died for the, the electness in a way that he'll make them born again. And Calvinism teaches, typically, that you're born again before you can even have faith in Christ. No, that's so unscriptural. Read your, are you reading your scriptures, man? Everywhere you're told to believe and you shall be what? saved. The Bible talks about repentance unto life, not life or regeneration unto repentance, you know, over and over and over again. By the way, it's funny because one of the greatest papers I've ever read against that doctrine came from John MacArthur. And I was confused. I was like, does John not understand what a lot of his seminary professors believe at the seminary there, that you got to be regenerated before you be born again? And John MacArthur says, basically, it's an incredulous doctrine that you teach that. Spurgeon said the same thing but also contradicted himself. So Piper claims that Christ's death only purchased irresistible grace for the elect alone. So in other words, in Calvinism, they believe in irresistible grace, meaning God irresistibly sucks you in by his power, and there's no way you can resist it. But he died for the elect in that way. But if you don't have that gift, he doesn't regenerate you as a gift, then he died for you just to leave you in your sins. 
didn't truly want to save you. Now, we have to ask the question, did God really want to save all or, uh, and so forth. Now, so what he's saying is that he died for the elect in a different way. He died with, for them, but also with, that, with his death for them, he brings also the gift of regeneration where they'll be born again. So boom, they'll come to life. And then they'll have faith in Christ after they come to life and they're born again. We don't tell people, hey, hopefully you'll get born again someday so you can believe. Do we tell them that? No, we tell them they need to come to faith. Amen? The Bible says the incorruptible word, right? We're supposed to accept the word of truth, and then we are born again. Amen? Amen. Now, this is important to understand this. I'm trying, not to go, I'm trying to go slower than normal because there's some heavy theology here. Are you with me so far? Okay, think of it this way. Think of, you know, what if I had a ton of money, which I don't, but what if I had a ton of money and I was in a village and I had all this money in the village, and everybody but me came down with a terminal illness. It was the same terminal illness. Everybody was dying. Everybody. But I had the money to procure and the will to procure the antidote. All I had to do was give it to them, give it to people. And I could save everybody. But the only thing is, the only problem was, and I said I loved everybody. Like he's quoting, Piper's quoting John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Say, I love the entire village, right? And man, I have a pill for each and every person, and right when they take that pill, they will be saved from their illness. Amen? Totally saved. Ah, but there's a caveat here. I also have to use a defibrillator on their heart. Boom, boom. Get them awake. Right? And then, because I have to give them the pill, but they have to be willing to take it. But if I use the defibrillator on them, everybody I use the defibrillator on will wake up and be willing to take it because I've used the irresistible regeneration gift of defibrillation. Boom, boom. But then I go around the hospitals, and I just say, hmm, man, I'm the savior of this entire village. But I only wake up a few people here and there in the hospital arbitrarily for reasons that are unknown from the past. And I just wake them up and give certain people the pill. But I could save everybody. There's people that are loved ones, they could be saved, so he's like, he's got to use the defibrillator. They're like, hey, would you think of me as a generous man? Yes or no? Would you think of me as full of grace or miserly? Miserly. It's so weird. It's like so, to me, it's like, demonic in a way. It's called the doctrines of grace. I'm like, no, that's not grace. That's a twist of God's grace. Okay? And that's basically what Piper's teaching is that, that I'm this man. I'd be a good man because I would wake some people up. But could you really call me the savior of the entire village? Yes or no? Well, wait a minute. I bought pills for everybody. So I refuse to wake most people up. Would you not call me the savior of the village? No. Why? Because I'm not, by, me buying the pill is more like an insult, you know, than a blessing because I refuse to wake most people up. And that's the version of God that Piper is promoting. But look at what Timothy says just in this very book. Back up just a couple pages before we get to chapter 4, verse 10, which is our study today. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at what Paul says from the very beginning in chapter 1 regarding God's salvific will in chapter 1. Verse 15, we have another trustworthy statement. Woo, I love this. What in the world is Paul doing here? He's hitting us with these trustworthy statements about the extent of God's love, grace, and mercy. And when these are trustworthy statements, we dare not let them get turned on their head where they're emptied of their meaning and where God is promoted as a miser rather than the all-gracious living God who the Bible says he has mercy over all of his works. And they shut up everybody, Romans eleven thirty two, 32, and a disobedience that he might have mercy on Everybody. First Timothy 1.15. And this is what I read to the gal that came up to me at the end of the service uh, Sunday with tears, wondering if God would accept her. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus, Paul says, came into the world to save who? Sinners. Sinners. Among whom I am what? Foremost. Foremost of all. 
He saved the worst sinner. Paul, why did he save you? The worst of sinners. Paul was going around having Christians killed. He was making them come out of their homes and blaspheme Christ. He says that. He's trying to kill them to get, commit blasphemy. He hated Jesus. He hated, he hated our Messiah. Yet why did Paul, God, the Lord save Paul? He tells us, yet for this reason I found mercy. Verse 16. So that in me, the foremost, the worst, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. Save me as an example of God's patience for those who would what? Believe in him for eternal life. Amen? In other words, you do not have to wonder if Jesus will save you. Amen? Because he saved the worst sinner as an example that he'll save you too. Just put your trust in him. Because he's a savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Then go, to, go on and look at what Paul goes on to say. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says to pray for everybody. First of all then, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Amen. For kings, all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Now, some Calvinists want to say, well, that means some kings some of those who are in authority, and some from different nations. No, when I read what Paul's telling me to pray for all kings and those in authority, I know he's telling me I have to pray for Joe Biden. Okay? Amen? And Paul had to pray for Nero, who would behead him, according to church history. Amen? So he's not talking about praying. Well, some Calvinists say, well, he just means pray for people, you know, that, that you know, all, the, the, he's just talking about different categories of people. Well, yeah, he is, kings. But not just a couple kings. Pray for all kings, right? That's the context. And be, uh, now check it out. The petitions and prayers and petitions in the middle of verse 2. And thanksgiving be made on behalf of who? So who are you supposed to be praying for? All men. For kings and all who are in authority. Verse 2. So that we may uh, lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our what? Savior who desires what? All men to be what? Saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. It's about men and people in general. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for the elect. Is that what it says? No. no. He gave himself a ransom for who? All. Oh, the testimony given at the proper time. Brothers and sisters, you should seal these verses in your heart. You should be putting 1 Timothy 1.15 with 1 Timothy 2, the first few verses through verse 6, or at least verses 4 through 6, with 1 Timothy 4.10. If we go on to read that again, he's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe, right? You put the text together, and it's an inescapable conclusion that Jesus died for everyone, and that's God's heart. And he gave himself a ransom for everyone. But you must come to faith, amen? You must choose to put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, Amen? Now, there's a lot of angles I want to attack this from, but I, I thought I'm going to emphasize through the rest of my message when I put in my message together uh, today. I spent a considerable amount of time on it. I thank the Lord because there was a time I hit a wall. Look, Lord, I'm not usually getting fatigued like this. I felt a little fatigued just for a little bit. I prayed, boom. Now I just feel like normal now. So God is good. But I was praying that in my heart was, man, since we're at Christmas land, let's talk about Jesus and the gift that he is for every one of us. Amen. Amen. You know, could you imagine being a little kid and seeing a big, beautiful gift of something you always wanted? And you want to look at the name tag who it's addressed to because you can figure out what it is. But you can't get in your parents' room, but you can see it through a window or something. And you just hope it's for you. Well, that would be one thing. I remember, man, with my brother Tom, we snuck in my parents' room. They had all their, the gifts laid out there before Christmas morning, a couple, three or four days before. And we were looking at the gifts that we were going to get. And we got these, there were these bonsai, they were called bonsai skateboards, you know. And they had the lips and the, the lifts and everything. And I was like, <laughs> mine was like metallic blue. His was like gold, you know. And I was like, man, and I'm tripping out. And of course, when Christmas came, it's just not the same, right? But yeah, when we got out there riding our skateboards, it was awesome. But could you imagine finding out the skateboards, the metallic blue one, that's for Kathy. And the, the other one's for Peggy. I'd be like so bummed out, you know. Well, how can you know for sure that the good tidings are truly and the great joy is really for all people and that it's for all, for all of us? 
We need to know that. And I think the most beautiful passage, the golden scripture it's sometimes called, the golden verse, let's go to it, is John 3.16. And I was quoting Piper earlier. Uh, and he mentions that in context of 1 uh, Timothy 4.10. And, uh, and he's right, but he limits it, unfortunately. But let's look at John chapter 3, verse 16. And I'm telling you right now, with regard to this debate that is raging in the body of Christ right now, and it's caused a lot of confusion with people. I mean, I was talking at one of the uh, men's retreats that we did, not for our church, but for a lot of the men that are part of our live stream groups and, and just love Good Fight Ministries. And we have 40, 50 men or so. I don't know what it is exactly. We go back east and, and just from different parts of the country and so forth. Uh, one of the brothers there is a, he's been a staunch Calvinist for a long time. He's a pa former pastor. A great guy. We had some really good discussions on, the su on these subjects. And it was interesting because uh, he told me, you know, at the end of, you know, we had a few discussions and toward the end he said, hey, Joe, I just want to let you know I've really moved a lot away from, even though he's upholding some of the arguments, right, I've really moved away from that a lot, you know. And then he said to me, he goes, you know, my wife and I, I told my wife one time, you know, if you and I were just dropped off on an island somewhere with just you and me in the Bible, he said, I have to admit, we would never become Calvinist by just reading the Scripture. It's something that he said that you have to be taught. Well, what happened to Sola Scriptura, right? I'm not, I mean, he's making that point because he is a Sola Scriptura guy, and so am I. But he's basically saying from the Scripture alone, him and his wife would have never come to that doctrine. And most Calvinists will admit that before they became Calvinists, they weren't Calvinists when they just read the Scripture on their own. But when they were taught Calvinism, they became Calvinists. Because you have to put these John Calvin shades on, man. So you look at the text and read into things that aren't there and erase things that are there. And you don't want to do that with the text of Scripture. And you know the sad thing I'm going to tell you right now? The sad thing is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Calvinistic pastors will preach Calvinism from the pulpit. But very few pastors will preach what I'm preaching and emphasize it and teach the difference between the two. Okay? And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm saying that so you understand there's a huge need for that. Okay? And God's given us just about 200,000 subscribers on our, on our, on our, Good, Fight, uh, our Good Fight channel. And we've played a very strong and, and beautiful role by the grace of God, opening many former Calvinists' eyes to the fact that Jesus does indeed love them. He did indeed die for them. We have so many people that write in and say, praise God. When I started hearing your preaching, I was like, I was just set free from this idea that wondering if I could be saved, you know? That's a beautiful thing. So if you care about the lost, and if you care about the battle that's raging, and you appreciate what Jesus did for you, and you want others not to be confused about it, this is something that you should be into, knowing who he died for, amen? amen. Making sure, yeah, he died for you. But also knowing what to say when you're talking to people. You should be able to say, okay, I know. I can go to 1 Timothy 1.15 through 17. And 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6, we just read. And 1 Timothy 4.10. You can just write those verses down right now in your little margin. You open your Bible, there they are. So let's look at the verse, verse 16. It, tell me this is not such a precious verse. For God so loved the world, so God so loved who? Does it say elect? No, he loved the cosmos in the Greek, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What a beautiful verse. And that to me is, it's hard to beat that verse. It says so much. There's so many glorious points there. And it says, it says it all as far as, you know, God's love for the world and the provision of Christ for all people. But I want to share something with you. There's three ways that Calvinists typically get around this verse. What a shame that you try to get around Jesus' words, right, and make them say something different than what they clearly say and that what the church understood them, him to say for centuries before the Reformation. But this is the point. Here's one way they get around it. Well, he so loved the world. Yes, he loved the world, but he loves the world in a different way than he loves the elect. But he doesn't love the world in such a way to give his son for the world and provide eternal life for them. Have you ever heard something so ridiculous? 
They say, yeah, he so loved the world, they'll admit. The word world there refers to the world. So these Calvinists will be honest with what the word world means there. But then they'll limit what God's love is. It's kind of like what Piper did with the different ways that Jesus supposedly died for the elect and the non-elect. And they'll say, he loved the world, yes, but he, 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 he loves the non-elect in a different way that he loves the elect. And therefore, he does not love the non-elect in the world in such a way where he gives a son for them because he only died for the elect and where he offers them eternal life in a genuine way because of salvifically giving his son. Why that's utterly ridiculous is giving his son and eternal life are connected to his love for the world. For God so loved the world that he what? For God so loved the world. Right? So much. Okay? And there's debate as even what the word so means, but a lot of modern exegetes are now saying, ooh, the traditional King James is actually a good translation there. When you look at the papyri and the, the way uh, the word so is an intensifier in, in, with the, the same exact construction that we're seeing here in John 3.16, contrary to some uh, Greek exegetes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the, for the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. So no, him loving the world is connected to the gift of eternal life. Amen. Through his son. Amen. Other Calvinists say, no, the word world there really means elect. For God so loved the elect. There's a problem there. The Greek word is not electos, it's cosmos. And, and the word cosmos throughout the Gospel of John, not one place means elect. There's no clear verse where it's like, oh, this is, saying, this is the elect. And by the way, my offer, $10,000 to just one, anybody who says, shows me a verse that says Jesus only died for the elect. Well, Joe, I can show you verses where it says he laid his life down for a sheep. That's good. I believe that. Does it say only his sheep? Oh, but husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. See, he loved the church and gave himself for her. I say amen. I quote that verse. It's one of the most quoted verses I have in my vocabulary. But it doesn't say only the church. Because Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, unto him who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do we want to say he only died for Paul? That would be ridiculous, right? Well, no, we know he died. How do you know he died for Paul? Well, because it mentions the sheep in the church. Yeah, amen. But it also mentions the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Amen. Amen. It also gets broader than that. Amen. So, uh, so some Calvinists are saying it just means the elect, you know, period. Now, other Calvinists, is the third way that I've seen Calvinists try to get around. They go, well, he, he's saying he loved the world in the sense that he loves all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, all you know, the Gentiles too. I say, yeah, amen. They make up the world. Oh, but, but. You st- but oh, I'm not saying just the elect, but then you say, okay, well, he loves all of them, but so that he loves them all, every one of them? Well, no, the elect within those tribes and nations tongues. Ooh, there's the eisegesis again. And basically it all boils down to, they're all basically saying the same thing. He truly only loves the elect in a salvific way to give his son for them and genuinely offer them the gift of eternal life. Are you with me? So basically, it bottoms, down, it bottoms out at, and it, it boils down to, uh, all Calvinists are basically saying, John 3.16, the love of God in a salvific way is really only for the elect there, which it can't mean that, and I'll tell you why. What's interesting is, I want to quote three Calvinists. I want to quote three Calvinists. I want to quote a top, and I love this guy, by the way, and I think this Calvinist, I actually enjoy reading some of his stuff. His name is D.A. Carson. I think he's a great brother in the Lord, differ from some of his views for sure, but some of his views with regard to evangelical Christianity are really beautiful, you know. Uh, I, I, he, when, we're, when a lot of my Calvinist brethren are right on, I say yes and amen, praise God for them, amen. When they're preaching something that's contrary to the love of God and what Jesus did for us, I'm like, oh, ouch, uh. But D.A. Carson, who I'm going to quote in a little bit, is one of the top, many would regard him as the top uh, Reformed Calvinistic theologian today. And I'm going to quote who many Calvinists would regard as their favorite and the best Greek scholar today among Reformed or Calvinist teacher, Bill Mounts. I'm going to quote both these guys on John 3.16. And then I'm going to quote one more Calvinist. Shay, you don't want to miss this. I'm going to quote John John Calvin himself on John 3.16. 
very interesting. Listen to this. This is what Bill Mounts. And Bill Mounts, I love a lot of the stuff he's done in the Greek language. He's a Greek scholar, but he's Reformed. He's Calvinistic. But look at what he says on John 3.16. When people are saying, should the word whoever or whosoever be in the text, as though anybody can come. And listen to what he says. Bill Mounts writes, contextually, John is asserting a relatively unusual notion that God not only loves those who follow him, John's normal usage, but he actually loves the entire world. Hence, requiring an indefinite construction. John uses an indefinite construction in the Greek. To limit the meaning to, listen to what he, he warns this, to limit the meaning of the statement to a subgroup of people, i.e. the elect he's talking about only, those among who believe, is to read in a, listen to what he says, is to read in a theology not supported by the Greek. And I am reformed, he says. I'm a Calvinist. He says, those who are doing that are reading into the text that which is not supported by the Greek. He's calling out his Calvinistic brethren for butchering the text. In the larger context, he says, it agrees with statements like 1 Timothy 2.4, which says that God wishes all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Amen. To somehow limit God's love to a subset of people runs counter to the Greek. I praise God for his courage. The meaning of pas, the Greek, which is, you know, uh, the grammar, the immediate context, and the larger context. So he says the meaning of uh, the Greek, he says the meaning of the grammar, the immediate context, the larger context in the Gospel of John he's talking about. If you believe in election, he says, as I do, then you understand uh, the Greek to be referring to the elect, but let's not dismiss the clear meaning of the text and suggest that God does not in some way love the world. Let's not dismiss the clear meaning of the text that suggests that God does not in some way love the world. Now he falls in back into the, he loves the world in some way, right? That's what the text is saying. Now he's saying those who believe are, are the elect, right? Well, we believe that. He's the savior of all men, but especially of those who believe. Amen? God knows who will come to him and who will believe, but he doesn't force them to by irresistible grace. It's a choice. Amen? He lifts, the son, Jesus said, the Son of Man be lifted up. He'll draw all men to himself. Amen? Amen? But he's very clear that not everybody will come. Because in John 5, a couple chapters later, he says to the Pharisees, I'm saying these things, and this is John chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 34 and 35. He says, I'm saying these things to you that you may be saved, says Jesus. Then in verse 40, he says, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Not heavy. I'm saying these things that you may be saved. That's his heart. But you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. In other words, you would have life if you just submit to my, my call, my desire. He even says to them, if you don't believe my words, believe my miracles. But Jesus, why don't you just give them the gift of regeneration and just defibrillate them? That's not how he works. We're not in a static relationship with God. We're in an influence and response relationship with God. Amen. Our relationship with God is not static. It's not predetermined. It's very real. That's why we're held accountable for our sins. And we're held accountable for rejecting the gift he gave because John 3.18 says what? He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been what? Judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. How could you be judged for not believing in the one that you weren't, didn't have the ability to believe in, supposedly, and didn't die for you anyway? Makes no sense at all. Amen? Now, that was Bill Mounts. Now, listen to D.A. Carson. Okay, He's also an incredible Greek scholar, by the way. He wrote a book I have called Greek Fallacies, warning about people not misusing the Greek which he sees people misusing here in John 3.16, his Calvinistic brethren, to get, get out of it. This is not Bill Mouse. Now, this is D.A. Carson. Listen to what he writes. He says, what usually happens is that we think that God's love must be wonderful because he, uh, the world is so big. Okay? He says, John's usage really is not primarily a big place. Only in three or four passages is it a big place, meaning John's usage of the word world, as in the last two places it appears in the book, where it's a big place that can hold a lot of books. Remember, it says that the, world was, the world's not big enough to hold all the books. So sometimes it's used of a big place, but usually it's used of a really evil people, which is sinners, which is all of us. And he, go, he says this, I know that some try to take cosmos, that's the Greek word for world, cosmos, two omicrons, 
I know that some try to take cosmos, the word for world, here to refer to the elect. Look what Carson's doing. He's saying the same. He's going to give the same warning. These are top Greek uh, scholars among the Calvinists. And, but that really will not do. He said, I know, you know, he's talking about his Calvinist brother. They try to take it as meaning the elect, cosmos. But he says that really will not do. All the evidence, all the evidence, all the evidence of the usage of the word in John's gospel is against the suggestion. True, world in John does not so much refer to the bigness as to the badness. In John's vocabulary, world is primarily the moral order in willful and culpable rebellion against God. In John 3.16, God's love in sending the Lord Jesus to be admired, not because it extended to so big a thing as the world, but so bad a thing, not so many people as so, uh, such a, uh, a wicked people. Nevertheless, he says, and it's important, elsewhere John can speak of the whole world. Whole world. That's in 1 John 2, 2. We know that, uh, you know, uh, he's propitiated not only for our sins, not only for our sins, not only for the elect sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So he's, he's marrying now bigness with badness. He, the, world with, the word cosmos, you understand? Isn't that good news? Died for everybody, no matter how bad you are which fits with what Paul said, he died for all men, and also the, what, chief of sinners. And then he, he cites 1 John 2, 2 here, thus bringing bigness and badness together. More importantly, in Johannine theology, John's theology, the disciples themselves once belonged to the world, but were drawn out. On this axis, God's love for the world cannot be collapsed. Listen to this. On this axis, God's love for the world cannot be collapsed into his love for the elect. Now, I'm not quoting non-Calvinistic scholars here. I'm quoting leading Calvinistic scholars who are head and shoulders above most of their peers in regard to theology. Carson states, I argue then that both Arminians and Calvinists should rightly affirm that Christ died for all in the sense that Christ's death was sufficient for all and the scripture portrays God as inviting, commanding, and desiring the salvation of all out of love. Wow. He says, when I have preached and lectured in reform circles, meaning among his fellow Calvinists, Carson writes, I often have been asked the question, do you feel free to tell unbelievers that God loves them? A little further down, he says, obviously, I have no hesitation in answering this question from reformed uh, reform preachers, affirming, of course, I tell the unconverted that God loves them. Good for him, amen. He says, preachers in Reformed tradition should not hesitate for an instant to declare the love of God for a lost world, for lost individuals. The Bible's way of speaking about the love of God are comprehensive enough not only to permit this, but to mandate it. In other words, if you are not letting the world know that God so loved them, you are disobeying Scripture because he says it's mandated in Scripture. And when I see a huge swath of the body of Christ disobeying the teachings of Scripture in the name of the doctrines of grace, and I see the damage it causes to the human soul who so much needs to put their trust in Jesus, and I see that Satan is the one that blinds the minds of those that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, whose image of God should shine unto them. I see there's a spiritual war here for, for who Jesus died for, because Satan hates the doctrine that Jesus died for everyone without exception. Now, when you want, now let's look at the broader context. Let's look at the broader context. Let's look at the broader context. I'm going to look ahead a little bit at my notes here. Okay, now, I'm excited about looking at the broader context and what Jesus talks about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness and as a picture of God's love for the world and so forth. And then looking at the immediate context, and I'm looking at my clock, which is your clock too. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, I'm going to have to rush and I'm going to have to put a bow on this at the end. And it's going to be a, I'm going to turn what's been a very clear gift into something that's a little bit like bummed out. Wow, I didn't give him all the gift, Lord. So I'll, I'll wait till next Wednesday. Amen. Because what a great topic when we're talking about Jesus being the gift of salvation to the whole world. Amen. And this, this December. Amen. And I thought, wow, what timing to get back to 1 Timothy. And I'm in 4, 9, and 10, which he says is a faithful saying. Amen. And when Paul says earlier it's a faithful saying, what does he say? It's a faithful saying that Jesus Christ came to the world to what? Save sinners of which I'm chief. Amen. Then he says it's a faithful saying that what? He's a savior of all men, especially those who believe. 
So we got two faithful sayings we're looking at at 1 Timothy, specifically 4.10. And it's all about God wanting us to understand that he's faithful in his promise and that salvation is for all and that we need not doubt, but we can rejoice in his great love for us. We have to simply make sure that we are believing and trusting. Amen. But I was, this builds momentum, you know, this message. And, I'm, and I thought, man, I'm just going to have, I'm looking at, I got five pages left. And I'm going to have to just, and I want to do that. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, put the bow on it next week. And praise God, what an opportunity to, uh, to focus on John 3.16 at Christmas time and really meditate upon what it really means. Amen. Because I don't want anybody to come to you. And it's happened to many a person. I don't want anybody to come to you. Uh, and talk you out of that gift because it truly is for you. And I just want to praise the Lord that, uh, that it's so beautiful that he so loved the world. Amen. Are you glad it doesn't say God just so loved only the beautiful people that are, that are only the stars. God, only, God so loved the politicians. God so loved the rich and famous. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? Aren't you glad it says that God so loved the world? Including the rich and famous. Including the politicians of both parties. I can see where people would be like, he'd really die for them. You know, I, I love some things that Spurgeon said, but Spurgeon was thought it was incredulous. Why would Jesus waste his blood on, on Judas? Well, I read Luke chapter 21 and 22, and I see Jesus say, take this cup and this blood that it represents, he said, is shed for you. And Judas was there. So I'm going to go with Jesus over Spurgeon there. And I'm going to go with Paul over any doctrine. Amen. I'm going to go with the reality that he came to save sinners, of which Paul said he was chief. So Paul is an example to all of us that the gift is for us. Aren't you glad he so loved the world, the cosmos? And next week, you'll have just a really rich understanding of what the word world means as we go through the Gospel of John from the prologue, other passages, and I'll be quoting the top Calvinist of all time, John Calvin, who agrees with us on John 3.16, by the way. Crazy, isn't that crazy? Yeah, but he said contradictory things about this subject. Yeah, he did. But I'm glad he said some right things about it too. You know, that's why I don't follow Calvin. I follow Jesus and follow the word, amen? Give me Jesus, Give me Jesus man. Jesus, 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 amen? So man, when you just read the scriptures when you were a new Christian right? And you actually open it for yourself. Did you come to a conclusion pretty quickly that God loves you? That he gave his son for you? Don't let anybody talk you out of that reality. Get excited about that. Amen? Because, man, if I'm the devil, I want you to be confused as to whether or not you could even approach God's throne of grace. I ought to be confused as to whether God's forgiveness is for you. I want you to think that you've been too bad or, or God loves others, but just there's something, something inherently wrong with you where he doesn't love you in a certain way and that you're just doomed, you know? And I actually had when I had one gal sharing with me her experience at a Reformed church I just mentioned earlier. Another gal came with her and they both said, going at that church, they both felt like they were eternally reprobate, predestined to damnation and had no hope. I've got a book by John MacArthur called Saved Without a Doubt. He had to write a book, tell people, understand that they're saved because so many Calvinists struggle with whether or not they're saved or not. And in the introduction to the book, he talks about a, a, a teacher at his own church who left and resigned because he wasn't sure that he was truly saved. And that, you know, you're going to struggle with that if you don't know if Jesus died for you. Now, the great thing is, that the irony here is we believe you have to continue in the faith. Amen. And we believe you can turn away from the Lord. But the, what blows me away is we have this incredible assurance, amen? If you're trusting Jesus, you don't have to doubt whether he died for you, amen? amen? You have to doubt whether he loves you, amen? And if you're not trusting Jesus, you don't have to doubt whether he died for you or whether he loves you. Because as many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens, amen? amen? Well, then we can have full assurance, absolutely, amen? Well, what about the person that's backslidden, that's committed apostasy, that's cheating on his wife and doing drugs? That person shouldn't have any assurance, amen? Because Paul said he beats his body down. So after he's preached the gospel to others, that he himself would not be a docomos reprobate, amen? So you shouldn't have assurance. If you're apostate, if you're falling away, that would be a false assurance. 
The worst thing to tell somebody in the apostate state was that they're, good, they're right with God. Amen? But biblical assurance, 1 John 5.12, He that has the Son has the life. He that does not have the Son does not have the life. Amen? Amen. These things are written that you may believe, right? That Jesus Christ, John chapter 20, right? 1 John chapter 5.13, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen? God wants you to know that you have eternal life. You shouldn't have to wonder whether Jesus died for you, whether he rose for you, whether he loves you. Do you know he died for you? It's a faithful saying, amen, the faithful saints. He loves you so much, so much that he gave his only begotten son. That's an incredible amount of love, amen. So wrap your brain around that this time of year. They didn't die for the rich and the famous. He died for the world. He loves you, amen. Amen. And he went to the uttermost and the guttermost, man, and died the worst death you could possibly die because of his great love for you and me. Amen. Father God, we thank you that where we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Father. We praise you for the free salvation, the free grace that's offered to each and every one of us, Father. We thank you, Father, that you've made it so clear in your word. We pray, Father, I beg you, I beg you, Father, in the the name of your Son, that my Calvinistic brothers and sisters who are struggling some even suicidal because they don't know if you love them and your son died for them, that you would show them that you allow the scripture to jump off the page and trump the traditions of men. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.